Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone that we do have two event series. The first one focuses on big data and data science. It's called Strata Data Conference, and you can find that at strataconf.com. The second conference focuses on AI. It's called the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at o'reillyaicon.com. In today's episode, I sat down with Jeremy Stanley. He's the VP of Data Science at Instacart, a popular grocery delivery service that is expanding rapidly in 2017. As Jeremy describes it, Instacart operates a four-sided marketplace comprised of retail stores, the products within the stores, shoppers assigned to the stores, and customers who order from Instacart. The objective is to get fresh groceries from popular retailers delivered to customers in a timely fashion. As you already glean, there are many challenging problems and many interesting opportunities for building high-impact data products. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All right, Jeremy Stanley, VP of Data Science at Instacart. Welcome to the Data Show. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. So let's start by introducing you a little bit to our audience. Uh, I see that you were started out as a math geek, but then <laughs> ended up ended up in business school. So you got practical on us. That's right. Yeah, I started out, you know, pursuing a PhD in math. Uh, and doing research and realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life, you know, studying a pretty obscure subset of partial differential equations. <laughs> so I, I went into uh, industry and, and actually started out in insurance and uh, really did some interesting work trying to predict, you know, mortality of uh, people that already had cancer uh, to better understand whether or not they could be uh, reinsured for life insurance uh, and then did a bunch of work predicting really odd outcomes like, you know, what's the chance that a physician's going to be sued for medical malpractice? Or what's the chance a specific coal mine is going to have a significant accident in the next four years? So that was kind of my formative introduction to... So how did you, how did you get your first industry job? Because yeah, your resume probably just said pure mathematician. No, that's right. Yeah, I really didn't have any practical skills. And so... The first job I got was at an insurance company, and I convinced them, and really myself, that I would become an actuary. And you know, they will hire anybody with a mathematical background that's willing to take the tests. Uh, there's a sequence of right, eight, right, right. ten tests. And so I took the first two tests in the first six months and realized, you know, while I could do this, it was not going to be very interesting, and uh, convinced them to let me start trying to do more machine learning. Uh, and try to tackle these new problems. So I, I had a couple of sponsors at that company that that kind of saw the future of what might be able to be done, and they gave me a lot of runway. And that's really how I started building the expertise and then eventually turned that into another role doing this full-time. And then at some point you went to business school, and uh, why in the world did you go to business school? Well, so it's interesting. I think that at the time, I had been doing this work in insurance for five or six years. And the kind of direction I was getting from people that I worked with was to become a deeper and deeper insurance expert. Uh, and I really didn't want to do that. I knew that insurance wasn't the, the industry I wanted to spend the rest of my career in. Uh, so the company I was at, Ernst & Young, sponsored the MBA. And I went on the weekends uh, and did the MBA you know, Friday and Saturday every other week. Uh, and actually, I really enjoyed that. It was, you know, the first year was just this foundation of business and 
you know, being able to understand all of the different operations and components of a business and building kind of uh, intuition for leadership style and experience. And it, in many ways, it broadened my horizon for where I could see uh, data and machine learning being applied in different industries. So at that point, was it called machine learning or was it still called data mining? I think it was called data mining. The, the term that was more commonly used at the time was predictive modeling. Uh, and that was maybe a little insurance specific. Uh, data science definitely didn't appear uh, until after I finished and uh, maybe even a couple of years after I finished my MBA. And then at some point you became a CTO. So did you start transitioning more towards the tech side? Yeah, I really wanted to get more into working with larger data sets, solving real-time problems, um, more complex machine learning systems. So I went to an ad tech company and started their data science team. And then the head of product went to Google. And so I took over product management and tried to figure out how to do that. Uh, and then eventually became the CTO and ran a you know, 100-plus person distributed organization uh, building real-time bidding systems. So that was a tremendous um, learning experience for me, both on the uh, algorithm side, right, talk tackling a lot of new problems on the kind of data and system side, figuring out how to build and scale these, and, and then definitely on the you know, uh, engineering and technical leadership side, how to you know, grow and manage a really big organization. So how did you, when did you first hear of Instacart? I first heard of Instacart when I was at SailThrough in New York. Uh, so I had moved on from ad tech to uh, more of a personalization as a service platform uh, and had worked there for a year and a half. And a good friend of mine out here in the Valley uh, told me about Instacart and about what they were doing and that they were trying to grow the leadership team. And so that that piqued my interest. So did uh, so you you weren't actually looking to move. You it was just a coincidence. Yeah, it it really was. Um, I think that I had long thought about moving out to the West Coast and you know being closer to some family out here, getting to know the community out here, and I'd really been interested in getting into a, a B two C business that had uh, machine learning as kind of a critical core competency. Uh, and so, you know, Instacart, when it, when it came, came along, I loved the product. You know, I started experimenting with the product and using it. So I really enjoyed it as a consumer. And I saw the you know, diversity and complexity of problems that would need to be solved to make Instacart successful. So what was, what was the state of data science and data engineering when you first joined? So when I joined Instacart, there were some uh, people doing machine learning here already and operations research science here. Uh, really focused on the logistics side. And so there was already a team, but there was no leader for that team. These were people that had been you know, hired by the engineering managers and were integrated into the teams and coming up with you know, version 1.0 of the problems. The data engineering and infrastructure was reasonably um, sophisticated already. They had adopted Redshift and they were moving data out of the Postgres secondaries in AWS into Redshift. So you know, there was a, a strong foundation and uh, a commitment to continued investment in the data infrastructure. So for our uh, listeners out there, uh, I guess, give us an overview of Instacart and why is data science at Instacart so interesting? Yeah. So if you haven't used Instacart before, the value proposition is pretty straightforward. We do grocery delivery from stores that you already know and love. And we deliver the groceries right to your doorstep and can do that in as little as an hour. 
So that's a pretty straightforward value proposition. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of complexity. There is a, a consumer facing application where you go in and select a store and shop for groceries and check out and select a delivery time where you coordinate communications with your personal shopper. And so there's all of the interesting machine learning problems around search and discovery. We are really changing how consumers buy food. If you think about going to the grocery store and considering whether or not you want to buy a new jar of pasta sauce that you haven't tried before, you're really limited to what you can read on the label and maybe what brand advertising you've heard about it, or perhaps a friend has told you about it. Um, but more often than not, you're trying these things on a whim. And so you know, Instacart's in a pretty unique position to see all of the data about what consumers are purchasing online in groceries uh, and help them you know, shop much faster, more efficiently, uh, and also discover new products that they'll love. Yeah, at, at Strata New York uh, last year, you gave this great talk and you described Instacart as a four-sided marketplace comprised of, comprised of stores, the products inside the stores, the shoppers who pick out the products, and then the customers who receive the products. So uh, is there uh, data science for each side of that marketplace? Yeah, it's funny. When you, when you look at Instacart as a consumer, you see this consumer application and you can immediately think of all of the ways data science could help there. But it turns out that there's probably 10 times the number of opportunities behind that. And they relate to these other sides of the marketplace. So there is an even more sophisticated application that we use for our shoppers to help uh, route and assign them to orders. And it's a really complicated process where we have you know, thousands of orders due in the next few hours. And we've got, you know, maybe thousands of personal shoppers that are all at different uh, points in space and time going to be free to accept a new order. And we're trying to predict what will happen under, you know, billions of possible combinations of assignment and solve a routing uh, optimization problem that's going to have everyone move as fast as possible, make sure all of the groceries are delivered on time, and that the quality of the deliveries is really high. And so that's an incredible kind of machine learning and uh, optimization challenge. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it sounds like operations research. It very much is. Uh, there is a class of problems called you know you start with a traveling salesman problem, where you've got you know a single say vehicle trying to make it to many different deliveries. Then there's what's called the vehicle routing problem, where you have multiple different vehicles and you can have them divide and conquer all of the deliveries. Uh, then there's the vehicle routing problem with time windows. Uh, our deliveries have specific times they have to be due. And then there's the capacitated vehicle routing problem with time windows, where maybe one car can take 30 bags of groceries, but another car that's a hatchback can only take 10 bags, and a bicycle can only take five. Uh, as you increase uh, the number of letters in the acronym, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, the CRVPTW uh, is the final one. The complexity goes up exponentially, and there's actually a whole bunch of other things that we still have to think about. Uh, there's a lot of variability and uncertainty in what's going to happen. Are the shoppers, I guess, uh, based on what you just said, the shoppers aren't interchangeable. So some shoppers have cars, some have bikes. and But also, are they do they specialize? Like, this person specializes in uh, organic stores. Yeah, so on the, on the shopper side, there's a couple of layers of specialization. One of them would be, do they, do they have a club card for a store like Costco? You know, you have to have a membership card to shop there. And so only some of our shoppers will have that card. So only some could do those deliveries. But probably the more important specialization that we have is we have shoppers that are dedicated to just picking groceries in the stores themselves. 
And so they will pick order after order after order. But they, ne they, they never leave the store. That's right. And they will stage those groceries in a physical staging area that has refrigeration and uh, freezer. Um, and then we'll have other shoppers come and pick up batches of deliveries and deliver those in sequence. So they might deliver five orders in sequence that have been pre-picked by a bunch of in-store shoppers. And so figuring out how to keep everyone busy and optimally utilized so that everyone moves as fast as possible is a, a kind of evergreen challenge for us. We'll always be investing in that. So the uh, on the shopper side and the delivery side, it seems like uh, a lot of optimization and operations research. On the consumer side, I imagine there's a recommendation engine. Is that right? Yeah. So you, you certainly have a recommendation engine and there are many opportunities for recommendations, you know, ranging from... You know, what item do people typically buy after they buy ghee, as an example, or after they buy cilantro, right? What's the next best thing to show them to uh, how do we properly order the things that they've bought in the past to make it as easy for them to, to repurchase the staples that they always buy? But then there's also the search problem, right? When somebody searches for organic carrots, should we show them the uh, whole organic carrots? Should we show them the baby organic carrots? Uh, might they want the frozen organic carrots? Or maybe they're looking for the organic carrot, you know, uh, baby food. Uh, and so uh, how do we take the query, the user, and the cat product catalog and optimally rank the search results? So, so give us an idea, Jeremy, of roughly uh, the skill set of both your data scientists and data engineers. Like, uh, So on the data engineering side, so what's if you're allowed to, what's your stack? Yeah, so on data engineering, so first we're in AWS, um, and so almost all of our infrastructure is in AWS. Um, and from a data perspective, we use Postgres in production as the primary database, and we'll use other databases uh, or other data stores as necessary. So you know, we'll use uh, Cassandra in some places, or you know, we're using um, uh, Elasticsearch, right, another you know, for search. The, that's the production data, and we can read off of the secondaries in Postgres to get you know, near real-time access to what's happening in the business. Uh, but we can only store you know, so much history there, and you, know, you don't want to do a lot of really complex queries there. And so we have our ETL infrastructure that migrates data from these Postgres secondaries regularly into Redshift. Uh, and then we also have lots of other third-party data sets that we uh, ingest from our retail partners or from others that go into Redshift. Uh, from there, on the kind of model building and feature engineering and machine learning side, we tend to use Python um, and we'll use uh, Spark uh, in some cases you know, where necessary. But more, more often, we try to do things uh, strictly in Python on single instances where we can. Um, we will use you know, the, the two types of modeling algorithms we tend to use in frameworks. One is XGBoost. Uh, it you know is a kind of workhorse and you know, broadly relevant for many different problems. Whether you're trying to predict how long it will take someone to drive from one location to another at a specific time, or you're trying to predict how likely somebody is to click on a specific search result. The other thing that we're increasingly using is TensorFlow for deep learning models. And uh, so, do you do you guys use any of Spark's machine learning MLlib? Yeah, we use MLlib in some in some limited cases, uh, but we're not uh, real broad adopters. I think we're tending to move more towards TensorFlow uh, for problems that you might have classically solved with like collaborative filtering algorithms in in, in MLlib. And um, so you you describe the shoppers and customers. I imagine 
you probably also have a very nice product database now that cuts across <laughs> the that cuts at in a taxonomy that cuts across the different stores. Yeah, that's right. So we work with literally hundreds of different retail partners. Um, and you know, many of them are ones that you'll know, like Whole Foods or Costco, uh, or um, you know, let's think think of another one that, that Safeway if you're here in in the in the Bay Area. But we also work with really big uh, retail partners like HEB in the South. Uh, that if you're in Texas, you know and love HEB, or Publix in the Southeast that has thousands of stores all littered throughout the Southeast and is a beloved retailer there. So hundreds of these different retail partners, and uh, we have a catalog that ends up with millions of products in it. And in addition to that, we need to understand, like you said, the kind of hierarchy of those products. Uh, we need to understand ideally where they're located in the stores. Uh, and then also in as real time as we can get it, how many of those products are available in any one of these store locations? You know, it's funny because I went to grad school in the pre-smartphone, pre-tablet era. And I happened to share a house with uh, some uh, grad students in the in the engineering college, and uh, we had this arrangement where uh, there were certain staples that were common for the household, mm. and and so we just agreed, okay, what store we're going to buy it from? And someone, one of these engineers, went to the store and basically discovered what aisle, uh, what aisle the. Uh, the common items were found. And so we had this list. And so if you were assigned that week to buy the staples, you can just look up this uh, map of the store and it made the shopping so much faster. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's amazing. And, you know, that's that's possible if you're buying the same things, you know, every week from the same store. But now imagine trying to do that for a million products at tens of thousands of stores. Um, and also, you know, although, although you said earlier that in some stores, there are there are people who just stay in that store, so they know it inside out. They do, although the store location, store layout is changing frequently. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's so right. there are many products that are uh, placed based upon um, um, uh, fees that the consumer packaged goods companies pay to the store. And so, how much Pepsi pays to, you know, Safeway is going to dictate, um, you know, what aisle, what, uh, how close to eye level, you know, what the kind of proximity to other brands that product shows up on the shelf. Um, so you know, having that intelligence about exactly where the products are and how to route shoppers through the store is useful, even for these people that, that shop at the store all the time. You know, many, many years ago, I went to a uh, marketing, advanced marketing research conference, and someone gave a presentation of some sophisticated Bayesian model of uh, just basically what you described, what, where in the shelf, at what level should I locate my product? <laughs> Right, right. And so yeah, I, yeah. I imagine and just uh, by joining Instacart, you probably learned a lot about uh, uh, analytics and modeling specific to this kind of retail sector. Huh? Yeah, that's right. It's funny, though, the, the marketing objectives about how to place these things are in some sense counter to our objectives, which are how to get them as fast as possible. And so I'll give you a funny example, like the, the milk or the eggs are typically located to the very back of the store. And that's done by design so that the consumer walks through the rest of the store and makes impulse buys along the way. But for, for us, if we were going to pick that item, it would be great if it was close to the front of the store so that we could get it quickly and then leave. <laughs> and so there are many, many things that are done that are actually make it hard to pick the items in the store. 
What about uh, what about price and pricing models? Does that factor into any anything that you guys do? Yeah. So the typical relationship is that the retailers control the price of the items on our storefront. Uh, and with our partners, we try to keep prices uh, close to or equal to what the consumer would pay in the store. Uh, but there is an element of this in pricing the delivery itself. Uh, and that's really for us to help balance supply and demand. So insofar as we see a surge in demand coming and we've got a finite number of shoppers and can only get them on to shift so quickly, uh, how much do we uh, uh, increase the price for customers, for deliveries, for short-term you know, windows in order to keep that available as long as possible? Or inversely, how do we offer discounts on pricing for delivery when the delivery would be much more efficient if it was done in, say, three hours instead of in the next hour? So you mentioned TensorFlow. So give us a, an idea of uh, the application of deep learning for uh, grocery shopping. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the, it's, it's taking it to a whole other extreme, right? Um, so the application that we have talked a lot about um, uh, publicly, we wrote a blog post on this application, and it's uh, you know, deep learning with emojis, not math. Um, and it's how do you order the shopping list for the shopper once they show up in the store and they've got to pick you know, 30 or 40 or 50 different items? And so the interesting challenge is that we don't really know the exact location. You know, I talk about some of our retailers have you know, great data about where their products are located. Others, you know, it's, it's of the order of a truck showed up with a whole bunch of watermelons yesterday and they're somewhere in that section. <laughs> and that's the level of precision they have. And so what we found works the best is to model the behavior of our shoppers. And so we've built a deep learning model that will take uh, any order and the specific items in that order, the store location it's going to be shopped at, and the specific shopper that's going to shop it, and it will sort that order uh, based upon that shopper's behavior. And then we can take that. So is the, is the model at the individual shopper, individual store? Well, yeah, those, the shopper in the store uh, go into embedding layers um, and are features in the model. But we train one global model across all of our many millions of orders fulfilled. I see. Yeah. And so, and so, th so then uh, how does deep learning fit in? Yeah, so the, the challenge is, is it's, not a, it's not obvious how you, how you solve this problem using something like XGBoost. Uh, you have you know, a million different products. You have tens of thousands of store locations and tens of thousands of shoppers. There's not an obvious way to represent those as features that are going to allow you to learn in an XGBoost model how to, how to sort a, a list of specific items. Um, and so it's in part because it's a little bit more akin to something like matrix factorization. Um, and so deep learning, you know, can be seen as an extension in some, some ways of those types of techniques. And so the specific approach that we use is to learn an embedding for the products and embedding for the shoppers and embedding for the stores, and then combine all of those into a sequence of hidden layers uh, and to be able to ultimately make a prediction, you know, given the shopper just picked this specific item at this store location and they have available to them these X items left to pick, what's the probability distribution over those next X items for the one they're most likely to pick next? And it turns out we can we can get that right about 60% of the time. 
So uh, on average, you know, when we predict that the, if the user just picked bread, we predict they're going to, going to pick a cookie next, given they've got five items left to pick. We'll be right 60% of the time. You know, that's a far uh, ways away from being right 95% of the time or 99% of the time. Uh, but it turns out that if you so, look so at... So what, what's ground truth? Well, so in, what, what ground truth is in this case is, well, what did the shopper actually do? Right. So we're really trying to learn the shopper's behavior. The true objective is to allow the shopper to move as fast as possible. Uh, but you know, that's not something that we can directly observe or measure. And it's pretty nuanced. It's not just about the distance they travel. It's things like you wouldn't want to pick the frozen things first. You know, that just would be counterintuitive to the shopper. Uh, you'd also maybe want to pr- uh, pick the items that are most likely to be out of stock early in the order. So you have time to communicate with a customer before you go to check out. So there are a number of different things the shoppers are considering. And so modeling their behavior uh, turned out to be the best way to allow them to then move faster. So we can then show them the list sorted, uh, how the best shopper would pick it. Um, and you know, when I talked about the six, so, so how, what's the, what's the definition? How do you grade shoppers? Yeah. So we, we're really grading shoppers in this case on their speed. Um, yeah. So how many minutes per so, item? But, but that, that doesn't uh, factor in what you just said, which is uh, I can be fast, but I put the frozen thing in first. No, that's true. Uh, we tend to manage for um, you know, both quality and speed simultaneously. Um, and I think that that's you know, worthwhile considering in the future. Ought we, ought we grade both together? But for the first you know, production, it was purely to find the shopper that had done the most orders, a significant number of orders, and was, and was uh, very fast in doing them. You know, as you were describing it, I was thinking uh, uh, maybe this can actually be also reframed in terms of reinforcement learning. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is an interesting opportunity to do that. Yeah. You know, where the state is how many items have you picked so far and which items are available. The action is picking uh, the next item. And then you have some kind of, I guess, cost or time is your reward function. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that there's, so another way to frame this, rather than just trying to model the behavior of the shoppers, is to try to discover, you know, what is the route? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lead, yeah. You're, inter- you're interacting the with the environment, and you're trying That's to discover right. the route, right? Yeah, what's the route that would lead them to, to go the fastest? And so you can imagine, you know, building a model that just predicts the, the time between, you know, if you, if you pick bread and then you go and pick a cookie, uh, how long do we expect that's going to take? And then, you know, given the 50 items, you can imagine the graph of all of those distances and solving the TSP on that, on that graph for distance. Um, and that's actually something we're working on right now and, and are planning to A-B test. Uh, the challenge will be oftentimes it's going to have the shoppers do things that are counterintuitive for quality. Well, if you ever decide to go down the reinforcement uh, learning route, there's a new framework from... The Rice Lab in Berkeley, the same people who created Spark, called Ray, which is oh, a nice. distributed reinforcement learning framework, but they're also building all of the li- libraries. So there will be the equivalent of MLlib, right? You know, a re- oh, great. Re- reinforcement learning library inside there. Yeah, nice. Um, so what else uh, do you use uh, deep learning for? Do you use it for any kind of uh, image recognition or object recognition inside the stores or? Yeah, so that's not something that we have in production yet, but we have built models to do that and we're working on you know, the right way to, to, to utilize that in production. Um, the challenge is, you know, ideally what we would do is every morning, uh, we would have uh, one of the shoppers or maybe the shift lead for the store walk down the aisles, uh, capturing images or video of all of the 
uh, items on the shelves. And then we would go through those and recognize uh, each of the products and count how many of the products are on the shelves and use that to inform our understanding of the inventory of the store. We'd also like to identify the exact location of the shopper you know, for every one of these images so that we can then identify the location of the item and route the shopper more intelligently. You know, you know, of course, as you're describing it, uh, one is tempted to think that, you know, everything is nicely laid out and things like that. But, you know, if you imagine a typical grocery store, there's all these kind of marketing little stands where the, with the special products. That's right. Yeah, the Odwalla <laughs> moves around the store constantly. You know, it's a it's like a, a, a little traveling stand within the store. And, and the, I think the other big important piece is the availability of the items. Uh, you know, we offer to our customers a huge variety. Um, and, you know, they may be shopping for pretty rare things. And there's a, a pretty good chance that the store is not going to have it. Uh, it would be great for us to know that as soon as possible uh, so that we can help that shopper, that consumer, you know, make, a, make an alternate choice. Or maybe they're going to change what they want to cook that night. Uh, because the store happens to be out of cilantro. So you, you're not plugged into the in real-time inventory system? So in many cases, we are. Um, but that's only going to cover a small fraction of the retailers we work with. Uh, many don't have real-time inventory systems. Yeah, given, so you, you mentioned really big retailers. So how small do you get in terms of retailers? Like, Is it like the corner store in San Francisco in New York City? Yeah, so we wouldn't work with a corner store or a, you know a bodega in New York, um, but we'll absolutely work with uh, uh, retailers that have only one location. Um, I think that's you know, not terribly common, but if it's a location that if it's a store that consumers really love, uh, like Zabars in New York City, um, you know we'll work with them and and shop from them. Uh, it's more common that we'll shop from stores that maybe only have two or three locations. Uh, it might be uh, Dronico's uh, here in the Bay Area or uh, Berkeley Bowl in the East Bay uh, or you know, a, a retailer like Fairway, which probably has more like 10 you know, stores in the Northeast. Um, but the, the, you can imagine the kind of level of sophistication for inventory management varies pretty dramatically. Um, and even for the really big retailers, it can vary a lot. You know, it's, a, it's a function of their culture and investment in technology and kind of how they, how they built the brand and acquired different retailers. So let's say I am a data scientist, maybe uh, fresh out of school or maybe one year experience. So how do you how do you train me into the Instacart way of uh, of uh, doing data science? And also, uh, how do I get up to speed with kind of some of the more domain specific uh, techniques? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. Is kind of a a, a, lay, a few layers of answers to that. So one is we're pretty clear at Instacart in differentiating data science between people that really want to do data science to help make decisions, which we call analytics, um, but that might be called data science at Facebook or data science at Airbnb. And you know, these are people that are going to be using um, R and SQL and Python and you know, doing a lot of reporting. So and BI, BI and business analytics. Yeah, they may be building sophisticated models, but they're doing it in order to help make better decisions. They're supporting the, the product managers or the executives, the operations team, uh, rather than trying to build products. So they're not doing a lot of engineering, but they may do sophisticated statistics and analysis. So that's uh, one group. And there we, we will hire some people that don't have as deep an expertise. Uh, the team that I focused on more are focused on data products. So, so... 
in your right. so that first group you still call them data scientists we actually call them uh, analytics analytics okay yeah. and then the that second second group that's more engineering building products you're calling data scientists i think some people jeremy uh, i don't know if you've heard this term some people are starting to use the term machine learning engineer yes in fact our our recruiting uh, externally, we call it machine learning engineer because we found that that's you know that gets us the people that that have the right kind of skill set. Uh, but internally, we call them data scientists. So they're they're stronger coders. They are. They're stronger coders, and they really have a passion for making products more intelligent. Uh, and you know, thinking holistically about everything from logging and infrastructure to the algorithm experimentation and evolution to the A/B testing infrastructure. And you know, kind of evolving the sophistication over time. Um, so those people, we don't hire um, uh, inexperienced uh, people. We tend to hire more experienced folks that have three to five years of experience. And a part of that is because they're going to be directly integrated into a team that's a combination of engineers and machine learning engineers. And so they need to be able to hit the ground running relatively quickly. Um, they don't have to have the domain expertise. Uh, they can pick that up, you know, on the job. But they uh, need to have a lot of the uh, kind of best practices from a, a coding and working with data perspective and a pretty deep understanding of uh, you know, machine learning and all of the fundamentals behind it. And there's a, there's a difference in the way, uh, as I think of it, so the, the two groups you described, there's a difference in the tools they use mm. and also yes. the, way they, the way they code, right? So one is one codes maybe in more of a one-off uh, way, and then That's the right. uh, the the other person codes more production. Maybe knows how to use Git. Yeah, I think ideally they both know how to use Git um, because the you know in analysis there's a there's still a lot of opportunities for building libraries and tools um, and actually versioning your analysis and collaborating with your future self, collaborating with your colleagues is is as important there as it is in engineering. Um, so I, I tend to think about from a workflow perspective and best practices of, you know, even writing tests, you know, it's, it's so easy to manipulate data in complex ways and make si significant mistakes that won't be caught uh, if you're not being thoughtful about how you're doing the, 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 the coding in R or Python. Um, but it is, a, it is still, like you said, it's a different skill set when, when your end goal is supporting something that's going to run in production and you're going to be on pager duty if it stops working. Uh, and the last thing you want to have is to is to have that happen silently and no one know about it. Yeah. So what I'm uh, what I'm uh, curious is why uh, no one has no one in uh, the education sector has noticed this yet. So there's a lot of these data science programs, but uh, there's really uh, a need for this type of uh, person, the machine learning engineer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's right. And you know, oftentimes we find that. These machine learning engineers, they can either be uh, people who started out doing data science analytics work, decision work, um, and they slowly taught themselves um, uh, better coding practices and then kind of engineering fundamentals. And, yeah, and they, and then, they discovered they liked that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then they started working on a one project where they started building something that went into production and they experienced all of the fires of doing that poorly and then, and then kind of you know, continued iterating from there. And then on the other side, you have uh, really talented engineers who understand, you know, oftentimes most of the fundamentals and theory needed to do machine learning 
uh, they just haven't read the final textbook, right? They and, and they may not think about things uh, as probabilistically. They may may tend to think about things deterministically. But they're seeing the power that machine learning is is uh, is bringing to bear, and and the tools like TensorFlow and Spark. So have so you have, have, have you seen anyone within Instacart move from that analytics group over to the, your group? Not yet. We haven't moved anybody from analytics to data science, but there are a few people that I think are interested in that over time. Uh, we have made a move of people from engineering to the machine learning engineer. In fact, we established a formal program for that about six months ago, and we have four people going through that program. Uh, so they are all now doing about half-time work on machine learning problems and half-time you know, core engineering work. And they have um, a mentor from one of the other machine learning engineers. Um, and you know, they're uh, doing a lot of independent study to build up their understanding of the best practices and principles and kind of learning all of the tools along the way. So that's been a, a really productive way for us to uh, internally grow these people. So do you think there do you think you can set up a curriculum for someone to move from the analytics group over to the machine learning engineering group? I think you can do something equivalent, but it takes longer. Uh, I think there's it's a it's a it's a longer road to learn the engineering best practices if somebody doesn't have that formal education. Um, so that's probably you know a two to three year journey uh, versus I think the machine learning you know a really talented engineer can learn the machine learning and become um, uh, effective in about a year. Unless, of course, Jeremy, you're in a really small startup and none, none of these roles. No, that's right. <laughs> just, yeah, that's you right. just wear whatever hat is needed. Well, and that's one of the best training grounds, right, is to go to a small startup and, and have to try to figure out how to do it all. And, you know, be okay with doing it all sometimes badly, but learning from your mistakes. That's certainly how I got to where I am now. Um, so you... Uh, been in uh, leadership roles in multiple places. So any, do you have any kind of uh, framework for building, managing, and nurturing uh, data science and uh, machine learning engineering teams? Yeah, so uh, I think I've seen a lot of different approaches to this. And Oh, no, are you going to talk about the, what is it, the debate between embedded versus, uh, what is it, embedded and centralized? Yeah, that's a part of it. That's that's definitely a part of it. And you know, there are strengths and weaknesses to all of them. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, what I call integrated teams, where the team has a mission. And so, you know, one of our team's missions is to effectively balance supply and demand. And they need engineers. They need mobile engineers. You know, they need designers. They need uh, data scientists or people with an operations research background. I really want all of those people to report to one technical team lead. You know, all of the technical people in that team to report to one technical team lead. To have oh, a I see. So they're like they're mission. like a self-contained. They're like a whole. Uh, they're a, a, a container of all right. the engineering skills you need. That's right, and they are going to define how they work, what they work on. Um, they're going to do all of their prioritization and support, and they're going to collaborate. And machine learning isn't going to be, you know, Susie's uh, problem. It's going to be the team's problem. And if Susie's the machine learning engineer and needs, you know, to collaborate with others, that's a very natural thing that just happens automatically. And how big are these teams typically? So typically, they'll be anywhere from three people to ten. 
it becomes difficult to manage them if you get them over over the size of 10. And so there's an actual leader. Yeah, and that person might be, in our experience, they're, they're either somebody who has an engineering background, um, who, has, uh, who can think about data products uh, very objectively and is kind of learning the art of how to manage uh, data products, uh, or they're somebody who has a data science or machine learning background, and you know, they're learning the art of how to manage uh, engineering. Um, and so we've got people from both backgrounds uh, being the technical leads for the team. So you identify a problem that you need a new data product for. Let's say this example you gave earlier of the uh, tool for the shopper. Right. And then you form the team. That's right. And so the question is, what are the weaknesses of that model? And you know, there are, uh, uh, I think, a couple that are big. One of them is, how do you recruit into an organization where the teams are siloed like this? Does each of those teams have to do well, their so own? So they, they, they're, they're always on the same team? Uh, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, like uh, once this project is over. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so these teams are, are fairly permanent. Permanent. Uh, okay. you know, they'll evolve over time as the needs of the business evolves, but they shouldn't be coming in and out of existence. They should be kind of uh, long-term mission-driven. Oh, so you own, you own this part of the site. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I spend a lot of my time on is actually managing the recruiting process and recruiting centrally, and then helping integrate those recruits into these teams when they come, uh, so that the teams don't have to do the recruiting themselves. The other challenge is kind of mentorship. If you're a machine learning engineer and you're working on one of these teams, and you're being managed by somebody who doesn't have that background, um, how do you kind of learn and grow and chart out your career path? Uh, and so that's another one of the roles I play is to kind of mentor these individuals. And increasingly, we're hiring really experienced people, people that have 10 years of experience to play uh, mentorship specific roles in different facets of our business around machine learning. So then uh, let's say I'm part of one of these teams. And then uh, at some point I decide, well, you know, what I really want to be is the team leader. But this team already has a team leader. Right. Yeah. So there's two ways that we uh, solve for that. So one of them is um, people will move teams and they may move teams as an individual contributor because they want to, maybe they have a really deep background in operations research and logistics, but they'd really want to understand deep learning better. And so we move them into the catalog team uh, so that they can work on those projects. Um, Or a team lead role opens up on another one of our teams. And we'll open that up to the entire organization and anybody can, can uh, apply to, to take that team leadership role. Uh, the other way it can happen is the teams uh, grow. And as they grow, they split. And we have to reshuffle and think about how to redivide these, um, these missions and these objectives. So you and go in there it. one day, hey, guys, I have good news for some of you and bad news for some of you. Well, it tends to be good news for everybody. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it does tend to mean you have a narrower focus. Or no, no, but what, what about if I go, well, Jeremy, I don't want to work on that project. I want to work on the other project. Oh, well, so I'm, I'm a big, yeah, no, I'm a big believer of these kinds of changes must be a fit for both the organization and the individual. Um, so, you know, if somebody, I, I would never push somebody into taking a different role that they didn't want. Uh, I don't think that would work out well. And um, what about uh, just kind of uh, recruiting? What's what's your secret sauce for recruiting? Because you guys have a good team. Is it just word of mouth, or is it just the network of the people inside the company? Or 
Well, I wish there was a secret sauce. I, I would say that like building the top of the funnel in recruiting is the hardest thing to do. Um, and there isn't really a secret sauce. I, I think that, you know, a part of it is the existing employees and their networks. A part of it is doing really interesting things and going out and talking about it publicly and being very open and transparent. A part of it is giving back to the community, uh, creating open source projects and promoting them, uh, open, open sourcing data and hosting machine learning competitions. Uh, so a little bit of a tease. We're going to release yes, a, a I, pretty I, big... I would say the two main ingredients there should be speaking at O'Reilly conferences and writing for O'Reilly. There you go. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, but a little bit of a tease. We're going to be open opening up uh, a pretty big data set in uh, the next month or so uh, that I, that I hope can become a standard for a class of machine learning problems. Um, so you know that kind of that those kinds of brand building things are pretty important. Then I would say the other piece is the execution of recruiting itself, and it's everything from how do you move candidates really efficiently through a process? How do you design that process to evaluate? the kind of deterministic things like technical skill set as early as possible and the much more subjective things like culture fit later in the process? How do you keep that process as unbiased as possible? And then how do you make kind of really compelling and competitive offers, uh, but keep those offers consistent with how you're paying everybody internally? So there's a bunch of kind of execution of bringing people into the organization, even once you've built the funnel, that's still pretty tough. I can tell you've given this a lot of thought that you probably, this is probably a huge chunk of your job now, huh? Yeah, I spend, I would say, a third of my time um, on recruiting uh, related activities, another third of my time uh, mentoring people in the team. Uh, and then my, the other third of my time, I still try to uh, spend doing projects. Um, you know, maybe it's building a tool that people will find useful or it's trying to create the open source data set. Uh, or it's you know fiddling with something that uh, nobody else really has the time to invest in. Uh, that kind of keeps me sharp. Okay, so let's close by helping you build the top of your recruiting funnel by uh, by giving our listeners a sneak peek into some of the exciting things that you hope to work on at Instacart in the near future. Awesome. Yeah. So I think we've talked about a couple of them. Uh, one is on the logistics side. You know, this operations research side. Increasingly, we're at the point where we have to rely upon simulations to uh, judge the impact of different changes, you know, different physical changes to how we operate or different algorithm changes. We can't A-B test in a really complicated delivery network. Monte Carlo, uh, baby. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we have a, a simulation engine that we're using to date, and we're going to be investing a tremendous amount into that, and that includes things like Monte Carlo, but it also includes, you know, pretty sophisticated algorithms to estimate uh, the distribution of outcomes that are likely to happen over, you know, multiple different timescales. Um, so really interesting, you know, machine learning and operations research and kind of engineering scaling challenges there. Um, I think another really uh, interesting challenge for us uh, is how do we optimize the experience for customers when the item that they want isn't in the store? And so it's everything from what we talked about earlier, you know, building the, the deep learning models to understand what's in the store and understand the location of any individual shopper in the store to what's the very best replacement for a product given it's not there. And how do we personalize those replacements down to the individual shopper? So a lot of really fun challenges there. I think the other side is we're really growing rapidly. Um, so, you know, we're... We're, we're going to launch a ton of new markets uh, this year 
Um, and so, you know, with that growth is creating far more data and far more opportunities to use that data at scale to, to make, you know, significant improvements, you know, in the product, uh, in the applications our shopper use. Uh, so it really does open things up across the, across the board. Uh, and the teams are all growing accordingly. And so opportunities for, for leadership and growth are also growing. And also, I think, uh, just the types of applications you're building, I think, seem strike me as some of the most practical and understandable human-assisted AI kind of. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that the the many things that may not be that feasible in a consumer, uh, direct consumer, you know, um, are are super feasible if you're trying to uh, augment and enable. Uh, a workforce that's doing the same task over and over and is really very motivated to try to do it as fast and as as efficiently and as high a quality as possible. So we can um, go out onto the frontier of even things like augmented reality uh, in order to help enable our shoppers. Well, this has been great, Jeremy, and uh, looking forward to hearing more about uh, uh, Instacart. Uh, I guess the next time would be at the O'Reilly AI conference in September. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking more then. And uh, this has been a real pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me on your show. You can follow Jeremy Stanley on Twitter at Jeremy Stan. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please do rate us on iTunes.